And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Happy New Year to everyone out there. Hope your 2023 is off to a great start. This is the first official episode of the Athletic Baseball Show in 2023. It is the Mailbag Edition. I'm Tim McMaster, along with Ken Rosenthal. Ken, Happy New Year to you. Tim, Happy New Year to you as well. And I hope all of our listeners had a great holiday season. And now we are back to it. Yeah, baseball slows down around the holidays. No question about that. But not all the stories did. And we let's start there. Um, Carlos Correa, obviously, we thought he was heading to the Giants. Uh, concerns over the medicals. Then the Mets swoop in. And then suddenly, you know, right around Christmas, the same kind of story peaks up. So that kind of bled into the holidays. But where are we right now as we start 2023 with Carlos Correa, who officially still doesn't have a team? Well, Tim, much to my surprise, this has not been resolved yet. Now, if we go back in time, go back to Christmas Eve, that morning, we, the Athletic, myself and Dan Hayes, broke the story that the Mets had concerns about his medicals, the same types of concerns that the Giants had. And that would obviously delay the process. My assumption then, as we wrote in the story, was that the two sides would work on a restructured deal, and I believe that is still happening. In fact, it is still happening, but I assumed eh, a couple of days, even with the holidays, it would get done sometime after Christmas before New Year's. It has not gotten done. And to me, if you're a Mets fan, that is not necessarily cause for alarm. What it speaks to is the complexity of the situation. And if you recall, the Mets deal was 12 years, $315 million. The concern with Correa is the long-term stability of his lower right leg. He had that surgically repaired when he was 19 years old. There's a plate in there, and for whatever reason, and we don't know, we have not seen medical reports, the Giants had concern over that part of his body, and the Mets have concern over that part of his body, not necessarily in an immediate sense. It's not like this thing is a problem right now. It hasn't been a problem his entire Major League career, but from a long-term sense, yes, there is concern. And the Giants deal was 13 years. The Mets deal is 12 years. So you can understand that if that indeed is an issue for both teams and their physicians, then the long-term arrangement might be more problematic. So how does this get resolved? Well, one problem here, at least for Correa and his agent, Scott Boris, is that the Mets have really all the leverage. If you look at the situation, Two times he has been flagged for the same problem with his physical. It would be extremely difficult for him to go back into the open market and say, okay, let's go. 10 years, 300 million. Who's in? Uh, That's not happening, most likely, because I can't imagine that other teams are going to look at this much differently. 
Again, this is two times this has happened, same part of the body. So, yes, the Mets have leverage, but yes, the Mets also want the player, and the Mets publicly, through their owner Steve Cohen, have stated that they want the player, which causes perhaps some problems going forward if they try to back out of the deal. There's no indication that they want to back out of the deal. The question then becomes, how do you structure a deal that satisfies both parties? The way to do it in a situation like this is to include in the contract what is called an exclusion clause. And that is language that basically says, if a player spends X number of days on the injured list with this specific injury, a specific injury to that part of his leg, then you can void future years or you can lower the guarantee. There are all kinds of ways to do it. Now, obviously, if you're Correa and Boris, you don't want this kind of language because it lowers the value of the contract. It creates this uncertainty, and clearly it doesn't have the same type of guarantee. But Boris has negotiated these kinds of things in the past. Did it for J.D. Martinez, did it for Pudge Rodriguez, and it actually, in neither case, did the player lose any money because of it. Players both times fulfilled their entire contracts without the injury ever reoccurring. Now, those were shorter contracts. This is a longer deal than really most deals we've ever seen in baseball, right? So that's where we are. I do expect it gets resolved. I don't know how exactly it gets resolved, and that clearly is a complex situation, and insurance is part of this equation as well. If, for example, the Mets cannot insure that part of his leg, that might be an issue as well. So as we go forward, what do we expect? We expect the Mets to get this done at some point. We expect it to be a dramatically different deal. It's not going to be 12 years, 315 guaranteed. The question, again, is to what extent does the language change? Does the deal change? And how is Carlos Correa going to be? Once he gets through all this, will it be a happy Met? Will he be upset? Who knows? One thing I said earlier about the leverage. Yes, the Mets have all the leverage, but they also want a happy player. And you don't want to start off a relationship, especially a long-term relationship, with a player with a certain degree of contentiousness. You want that player to be comfortable with the deal he's gotten and not feel like he has gotten shafted in some respect. Clearly, if you're Correa and you're Boris, you're going to have to recognize that this is a concern that has arisen with two different clubs, and it's going to need to be addressed. But does Steve Cohen go all the way with the hammer? I don't believe he will. So I would assume this week we see some resolution, and then we see the Mets spring into further action. They're going to need to make some more trades. They've already traded McCann. They would trade Escobar, I would believe, if they signed Correa and got that deal finally done. And you may see some other things, too, to lower their payroll. Not that they've shown much concern for lowering their payroll throughout this whole offseason, but they would do some things along those lines. So that's where it is. It's the biggest story right now in baseball. It's the one we're all waiting for. Most of the other free agents are signed. A good number of the trades we expected have occurred, including over the Christmas holidays, the Dalton Varsho to Blue Jays trade, that really, for me, was a very positive move for Toronto. They traded, granted, a catcher, Gabriel Moreno, who could be a star, but he is still a prospect, 
and they included Lourdes Gurriel Jr. in that deal. But Varsho is kind of a under-the-radar, terrific player, and he's going to help them. There's no doubt about that. So we saw that. We saw some signings as well. Evaldi to the Rangers, Rich Hill to the Pirates, a couple of others. But really, most of the big free agents are gone. Correa is the one that remains. It is refreshing that most of the free agents have gone. It's This is much better than, than waiting until mid-February to see where players go, that's for sure. Uh, as far as all the money being spent, uh, no surprise, some of our questions in the mailbag are regarding that, specific, specifically Steve Cohen and others. So let's get right into the mailbag now. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. All right, if you want to get involved, uh, two weeks from now, we're going to be back on our every other week cadence here until we hit the baseball season. You can call us at 646-543-7072 or email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Uh, Ken, the first question comes from Andrew. He says, in light of the Correa, he said signing. This was before the later news came out, but the question's still relevant. In light of Correa going to the Mets and how much money the Mets are spending in general, he's curious if you think this will change the way owners in baseball think about a salary cap if Cohen does, in fact, end up buying them a World Series or two. Andrew, it won't change the way the owners think about the salary cap. They want one, they've always wanted one, and they're going to continue to want one. The issue in baseball, as opposed to other major professional sports in North America, is that the players' union has historically opposed a salary cap, and not just opposed, basically they consider that a line that cannot be crossed, and that is an issue that they will not relent on. Now, fans might have a problem with that. I know a lot of fans do have a problem with that, but that is the union's position. They prefer a market-based approach, a free market in essence. And actually, the market is not entirely free as it is because, of course, players cannot become free agents until their sixth year, but they don't want restrictions on how much teams can spend. There are restrictions to a certain degree. That's what the luxury tax is there for. It's supposed to slow spending, and in many cases, it has. In Steve Cohen's case and in the Dodgers' case and Somewhat in the Yankees situation as well, it is not, at least this offseason. The Dodgers are kind of taking the offseason off. That relates to Bauer somewhat. It's a little bit different, but they have spent heavily in the past. So yes, there are going to be owners, probably all 30, that want a salary cap, but I don't see this sport getting one anytime soon. You would have to convince the players that somehow the economics that they are working under right now would be better under a cap system than currently exists. I don't know that they can convince the players of that. NBA, NHL, NFL, completely different leagues, completely different unions. This union has been the most powerful of those. I would argue, and I've written this, it's arguably the most powerful labor union in history, considering what they've accomplished. So that's where it is. Again, this is a core issue for the union. They're not going to bend anytime soon. And we just started a new labor agreement that's going to last the next five years. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. All right, we have another owner question. This one from Brendan. He says, thanks for the great show. During the offseason, we frequently hear about owner-prescribed budgets for payroll. We also see teams that blow past any expected budgets, like the Mets and the Padres this year. Whenever a team does this, the owner is frequently praised for spending their money to get a winner. My question is, how much do large contracts actually get subsidized by an owner spending their actual money out of their pocket? Or is the money the owner is spending more of an indication that the owner is willing to take less money in profit from a given season and allocate it to payroll? I guess my question is, large payroll is really the owner spending personally or just an opportunity cost? Brandon, it's hard to know. And it's hard to know because the owners, except in two cases, do not open their books. And in those two cases, there are corporate owners, Liberty Media with the Braves and Rogers Communications with the Blue Jays. So if you ask me how much of the Padres spending is Peter Seidler, the owner, basically saying, here, out of my pocket, we're going to do this, or is he guarding against certain things in the future, as you said? I don't know. But we can say this, certain teams, the Padres are the example of this right now. They've essentially said it. They believe that spending money is the way to make money. And certainly in business, that is a strategy that many people pursue in all walks of life. The Padres believe that all the money they've spent, all the buzz they've created has made the Padres a singular entertainment vehicle in San Diego. And it would be hard to argue otherwise. They've drawn great in the last couple of years. And they've got huge interest in the team as well this year, following the signing of Bogarts, the expected return of Tatis, all the things happening around that team. Now, there are other clubs, and you can look at the Red Sox maybe this offseason. The Cubs have been criticized for this. You can maybe even talk about the Dodgers this offseason. They may feel we can spend less 
and still get the same kind of interest and attendance. It's certainly proven to be the case for many of these teams over the years. But to get back to your original question, Brendan, I don't know how each individual owner budgets. I don't know how each individual owner thinks. They don't talk about these things. We'd only be speculating. Okay, next question is from Alan. You mentioned the Braves, and he has a question about that. He says, why don't more teams try the Braves model for a rebuild? The teardown started in 2014. They had numerous all-stars, and instead of getting rid of everyone, they kept their best hitter, Freddie Freeman, and their best pitcher, Julio Tehran. They brought in a decent outfielder and great leader in Nick Markakis on a four-year deal and then started bringing in prospects. The prospects got to learn the game from great veterans, and it seemed to speed up their growth. The Braves were back to winning a division in four years. This is a good question, and I had to think about it a little bit. Now, the example, the other way would be the Astros, who tore all the way down in the mid-2010s, and the Orioles, who have torn all the way down more recently. The Cubs did the same thing in their first go-around, their first teardown. But now you've seen some teams that have kind of taken the same approach that the Braves have, and yet it really hasn't worked for them. Look at the Cubs this time. After all of their trades and losses, defections, Schwarber, Rizzo, Bryant, Baez, the whole gang, they still had Wilson Contreras. They still had Kyle Hendricks. Well, it only accomplished so much. The Reds, they kept Votto. They had Luis Castillo for a while. The Royals kept Sal Perez, brought in Greinke last year. They've been in that same kind of mode. Even the Guardians, Jose Ramirez, Shane Bieber. Now, they haven't really rebuilt. They've been good throughout. But a lot of teams have not gone all the way down and yet have still struggled to rebuild properly because they haven't drafted well, they haven't made other decisions well, whatever the case might be. Why do teams go all the way down? That might be the better question here. And those teams generally in the past have said, well, What's the difference between 60 wins and 70 wins, even 75 wins? Now, that is a question of competitive integrity. And the new CBA with the draft lottery tries to address that somewhat. I don't think it goes nearly far enough. There were other issues that could have been raised and attacked to ensure that teams tried harder to win games. Didn't happen. The union wanted some things to happen. MLB said, no, lottery is enough. All right, there was some progress, not enough in my opinion. But basically, the Braves did this right. And my only issue with teardowns over the years is there's no guarantee you get back to where you want to be or even get to that place. Reds are a classic example. Even the Royals, they have not come out of it yet. So it's all well and good. Collect draft picks and spend more money internationally and rebuild and Start from the bottom, but you don't always get back to the top. Prospects are just that, right? Prospects. Um, until you get the proven player, you never know. Uh, the next question comes from voicemail. Hi, Ken. Joey from Omaha here. I appreciate your show because I'm not in the weeds of baseball as I am of other sports, particularly soccer, which brings me to my question. In soccer, most Trades are done through a transfer. A team like Liverpool will approach another team in England or even another country and approach them with a flat fee to sign a player from another team. This doesn't 
really occur in the United States. Is there something in the CBA that prevents this? Does the single entity structure of MLB have to do with the reason that this doesn't get done? Or is it just because it's not American and it would be unheard of? I think of a team like the White Sox pretending that Jerry could spend money who doesn't have a very good farm system being able to approach a team with cash incentive as opposed to minor leaguers to try and sign a top-line player. But it seems never done in the United States, in in MLB, and other sports. So I'm curious as to why you think that's the case. Joey, excellent question. And I'll start off by saying that while Major League Baseball does not have a pure transfer process, we do see salary dumps, right? We see the kind of thing that you just described, where a team takes on a contract in order to give up less in talent. That happens quite frequently, maybe a little bit less of late, but it's something that is done. Now, to the heart of your question, why aren't pure transfers done in baseball? I don't have an exact answer. I did some research last night trying to figure this out because I knew this question was coming. There are a couple of things. You mentioned the single entity that is MLB. That's part of it. All of these teams are operating under one umbrella. But at the same time, the relatively small player pool is a part of it too. You don't have as many teams looking for players. You don't have as many players. It's 30 teams versus, say, hundreds of football teams, soccer teams, just in Europe alone. Now, we do have, with the Japanese clubs, the posting system, which is something of a transfer system. And you know how that works, a percentage of a player's salary that comes over from Japan, who was posted, the major league team has to give a percentage of the salary, not the salary itself. The salary goes to the player, but the number that is determined to be the posting fee comes from the salary. That does happen. So all of that is in play here. I also saw it written somewhere where this would violate U.S. labor laws. I guess you couldn't obviously post or transfer a free agent. So... I wish I had a clear answer. I don't. Perhaps another listener would like to call in next week and explain it better. Perhaps an attorney. Sometimes as a baseball writer, you need to be an attorney, an accountant, a physician, a psychiatrist, and we're not qualified to be any of those things. So I'm open to suggestion here, but those are some of the thoughts that I saw. Also for the other leagues, NBA, NHL, NFL, that have a salary cap, those teams in theory don't need the money. So it's all of that and maybe none of that. I'm not exactly sure. It's a good point. It would only be baseball because of the lack of a salary cap because none of those professional soccer leagues have salary caps. The spending is just insane. Um, and, and I don't know if you realize this, Ken, but they always list the salaries in uh, like the Premier League in what the players make per week instead of like annually. It's crazy. It's interesting when you see it that way. I'm, I'm glad we don't do it that way for, for in the United States where you hear about a, a soccer player making $250,000 a week. It, it kind of hits more than like what they make for a year. But anyway, uh, I digress. And we go back to voicemail for the next question. Hi, this is uh, Bill Brahms. Um, I just finished listening to your mailbag podcast. And Ken, in passing, made a statement that he felt that baseball become more popular in the future, I think justifying, potentially justifying some of the enormous amounts of money that are being spent. But I'm just wondering if 
Ken would talk a little bit about why he thinks baseball will become more popular in the future. I'm thinking it's because of the rule changes, but it would be interesting to hear him talk about that. Thank you. Bill, thanks for the question. And yes, the rules changes should help. They are designed to make the game more aesthetically pleasing. Now, some fans will say the game is fine, don't touch it, but a number of other fans would say, hey, this thing needs to pick up the pace (laughs) and it needs to move and stop dragging so much. And that's where the pitch clock comes in. That's where the ideas to increase action come in. The stolen base elements with the larger bases, the restrictions on pickoff moves, and then the restrictions on the shift that in theory is going to improve the action as well. So that's part of it. Another part is labor peace. Labor peace, and we have that for five years now, gives the sport the chance to breathe and to maybe move forward in some ways that it, under threat of a stoppage, would not have been doing over, for instance, the last one or two years before the agreement was reached. Now we're one year into this agreement. There's some opportunity here, if these two parties wish to engage in it, to really grow the sport. Also, I expect at some point that the blackout issue, the streaming issues, all of the questions that are revolving around the sports relationship with bringing it to its fans in ways other than live performance, I expect baseball is going to figure some of these things out. They have to figure out the blackout thing. They have to figure out streaming with the cable model, not the same. And if they do figure it out in a healthy way, that should help too. And finally, at some point, and this is maybe only something that affects a few markets, but I expect that we're going to see Oakland and Tampa Bay resolved one way or the other through relocation or through new ballparks in those areas. And we're going to see expansion to 32 teams. And all of these things put together is why I feel confident that the sport is going to move to maybe an even higher level. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, Nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. 
All right, the next question comes from Steven. He says, hey, Ken and Tim, let me throw you a curveball. Why should fans of the teams which have little to no chance to sign high-quality free agents, let alone the top guys, which is the vast majority of teams, care about what goes on at the winter meetings? How can a sports league cultivate and sustain broad interest in only a handful, if only a handful of teams can compete for the best talent? The Rays and the occasional other lower payroll teams, which have playoff success, like the Guardians in 2022, doesn't change the fact that these teams can't compete at that level. Well, that's true. And that's a complaint a lot of fans have, Stephen. There's no question about it. Now, the Padres are kind of the counter to a lot of this because their owner has clearly decided he can compete. But I understand if you're in Cleveland, if you're in Pittsburgh, if you're in Tampa Bay, Oakland, many other low revenue markets where your owner just chooses not to spend or where he feels his market doesn't give him the ability to spend in the ways that other teams do, then there's a lot of frustration that comes in. Now, fans of low-revenue teams might view this as a cop-out, as a coastal elite point of view. But if I were a fan of one of those clubs, a low-revenue team, and I'll use the Guardians and the Rays as an example because they are two of the most successful, I would delight in the David versus Goliath type of scenario that takes place. And we've seen it with the Rays overcoming the Yankees to win a division, advancing to the World Series. This is happening for the Rays or had happened in separate seasons. We've seen the Guardians overcome the White Sox, a bigger market team, though one that doesn't necessarily spend at the level of the Mets, Yankees, Dodgers. So that kind of thing can happen if your team is well run. Now, It doesn't happen in Pittsburgh, and it doesn't happen in Oakland, and it hasn't happened in Miami because those teams have not been well run. So there are clear disadvantages. No one would dispute that. It is a problem inherent to the sport because the sport's revenue is based locally, not nationally. The NFL draws most of its revenue from the national television contracts. Baseball generates most of its revenue on a team-by-team basis in each individual market because the national television contracts, while substantial, do not dictate the sport. The local markets do. So that's just the structure of it. That's just the nature of baseball, and that's not going to change. Revenue sharing was designed to help some of this. I would argue it has not gone far enough in certain cases. The large market teams would argue, ah, we're giving plenty, and those teams aren't spending. So these are problems that exist They're going to exist, but if I were a fan of a low-revenue team, again, I would want my team and I would delight in my team kicking some big market teams, you know what. One other point I want to make on this. Spending does not equal winning. It does not always translate, and the Mets this year are going to be a classic example of this. Are they guaranteed to win a World Series even if they get Correa? Absolutely not. They might not even be the best team in their division. They've got an older starting rotation. They've got still some offensive questions. They're not a flawless team. So for all the complaining that goes on, and justifiably so about spending on certain teams, it doesn't guarantee a thing. 
All right. The next question is from Kenny says, I have a theory about why Seattle may have trouble attracting top notch talent. I think it's because ball players on the Mariners have to endure longer flights than players on any other team. That may not sound like much, but as the season drags on, those air miles can wear you down. What do you think of my theory? Not buying it. Now, the Mariners did fly more than any other team last year. They will be second this year. The A's will fly more. But the reason I'm not buying it is because last year, I'm sorry, this year, the year ahead, the team that will fly the fourth highest number of miles is San Diego. Obviously, players want to go to San Diego and aren't deterred by the travel. San Francisco will be third this year. Players go to San Francisco. They don't have a problem doing that. So, yes, I'm sure that if you're a player, maybe you consider that. But at the same time, I don't know that it's determinative. What generally determines where free agents go is money. And that is the biggest thing. Ballpark can be a factor. That might hurt Seattle more than even the travel because the ballpark is not that offensive friendly. But you probably could say the same for San Francisco and San Diego as well. By the way, if you're curious, the teams that fly the fewest miles, as you might expect, are the teams in the Midwest. Milwaukee, Detroit, White Sox, Cleveland, Cincinnati, those teams generally fly less than the others. And remember, the schedule is changing this year. So every team will play every other, and it won't all be evenly split up. Some teams will travel more than others. And baseball has said overall, the travel won't be that much different on a three-year basis. Year to year, there might be some fluctuation. One team might travel a little bit more than another or than it would normally. But on a three-year basis, it's not going to be much different. Yeah, you would think the new system would lead to more travel just because you're playing less division games. That was my first question. Yeah, Yeah, that was a question I asked him. And I believe I wrote about this in the notes column because it jumped to me right away. I was like, whoa, 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 there's going to be more travel. But The way it was explained to me, it's not necessarily going to be the case. It's not going to be the case that they're structuring it in a way that is reasonably equitable and not much of a departure from where it's been. All right. Next question. Final question. This one comes from Jordan. He says, and this question comes up from time to time. Ken, I'd love your take. I don't think I've heard your take on it before, but can you please explain the clause or rule that prevents Yankees players from growing facial hair? Players, of course, want to maximize their market and not have any team rule them out. But what is stopping a player from challenging this? For instance, when Aaron Judge was asked if he wanted to be a Yankee and they upped their offer, What was preventing him from saying, yes, I do want to sign with the Yankees, but you know what? I want a beard too, Hal. Is there language that does not allow for this, or would it take a megastar like Judge to take a stand? Jordan, I love this question. And if Aaron Judge had told the Yankees, you know what, guys? I want to grow a beard. I believe this policy would have been abolished (laughs) because is it worth losing Aaron Judge over? Now, Aaron Judge did no such thing. He got what he wanted out of this, nine years, $360 million. But the Yankees do have a hair policy. Now, it's not a facial hair policy because if you saw Matt Carpenter last year, they clearly allow mustaches. They do allow mustaches. It's just no beard and you can't have your hair touching your collar. So Garrett Cole had to cut it down a little bit. Other players have as well over the years. And you make a good point, Jordan, about the marketing element and how you're limiting self-expression for players 
and there have been players who have complained about this in the past. Clint Frazier was one. Andrew McCutcheon, I believe, was another. You've had other players say, Brian Wilson did this, David Price did this as well. I'll never play for the Yankees when they have this policy. Well, that's bogus. They would have played for the Yankees if the Yankees paid them the most money, and they gladly would have shaved as Garrett Cole did. But in general, I expect at some point, I don't know when, that this policy is going to be abolished. It's been in place since 1976, instituted by none other than George Steinbrenner. But you've seen guys not get around it over the years, but certainly wear mustaches. Reggie did, Thurman Munson did, Matt Carpenter did. There are others as well on the Yankees. But yeah, let's face it, this kind of thing is, I don't know, needs to be put out to pasture. The Yankees, I think, have been able to get away with it because they're spending the most money most of the time. You know, the Pirates couldn't have a policy like this. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it would not work. Uh, all right, thanks for all the great questions. Great to be back, uh, bringing you the mailbag every couple of weeks. Um, if you want to get involved down the road, the number again, 646-543-7072. And the email address is Show at gmail.com. We'll have three episodes on the feed this week, this mailbag edition. We'll also have the round table coming out on Wednesday. Those guys are going to look ahead to what is left to do here in the offseason. And then on Friday, DVR and Keith Law will be looking at the teams that have had disappointing off-seasons and if there's any way to salvage it at this point. So great stuff coming up on the feed this week. Uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. If you want to join The Athletic, always a great deal running. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash at symbol, the athletic baseball show. Ken, have a great week. You too, Tim. Thank you. All right. And everybody out there, have a great week as well. We'll talk to you soon.